Hi, everyone. I'm Tom Giles in for Emily Chang, and this is Bloomberg Studio 1.0. As the executive editor of the global technology team at Bloomberg News, I help lead a team of 60 reporters working around the world on stories that range from WeWork's remarkable rise and its dramatic fall from grace to Facebook's ongoing antitrust probes. I was excited to fill in the anchor seat for this episode because I've covered Microsoft for many years and I've seen it really evolve in terms of its ability to change the technology landscape and its impact on the world, really. Having spent 26 years of his career working at Microsoft alongside Bill Gates, Steve Ballmer, and now Satya Nadella, Brad Smith has had a front row seat to some of the company's biggest milestones. He's now focused on spreading the message beyond Microsoft's campus with a new book, Tools and Weapons, The Promise and the Peril of the Digital Age. Joining me today on Bloomberg Studio 1.0, Brad Smith, president of Microsoft. Brad, thanks for being with us today. A lot of the last year has been spent talking about and spilling ink over this complex relationship between the U.S. and China. I'd like to hear more about your concerns about the way this is playing out between the U.S. and China and what impact that could have on U.S. technological leadership on a global arena. The U.S. is the digital technology leader in the world today, but I think one of the important things for all of us to remember is that we don't actually invent or create technology by ourselves. Uh, if you buy an American technology product, a product that is made by an American company, in all probability, it consists of inventions that came from Silicon Valley as well as Bangalore and Beijing and Dublin and London, Toronto and Melbourne and the like. Um, we need to continue that. If we were to try to construct a new digital iron curtain down the middle of the Pacific, in all probability, we would hold ourselves back rather than hold someone else back. We need to keep that in mind. What happens when there's theft of intellectual property? We will, in all probability, have a new generation of technology export control rules in the United States. That's sensible. Um, but they're going to need to work differently from the way they've worked in the past. Uh, in sensitive areas, technology that could have more important military uses, for example, uh, you're still dealing with technology that may have important civilian uses as well, so-called dual uses. Um, we'll need a regulatory regime that focuses on how the technology is being used, who the users are. Uh, only by doing that can we protect national security while promoting economic competitiveness. Part of your discussion focuses on the different ways U.S. consumers and Chinese consumers use technology, and you have some interesting and colorful examples. It goes to the multifaceted nature of the U.S.-Chinese technology relationship. On the one hand, there are frustrations that American companies have about a lack of market access, and I think those are legitimate frustrations, as we describe. But at the same time, we shouldn't overlook the fact that there are times when Chinese consumers simply have different preferences. I think you can look at the challenges that a company like Amazon or a company like Google has had in China, and it, part of it, at least, relates to formidable local competitors 
that moved in some ways in a different direction to meet the tastes of Chinese users. There's a lot of inward-looking nationalism, a rise of populism, um, you know, areas where leaders are playing on xenophobia. What gives you hope that in an era like that, we can achieve the kinds of cooperation that are going to be needed to achieve these changes? Well, the thing that gives me hope, as we describe here, are the shoots coming out of the ground, the progress that we're making in certain areas. Cybersecurity is certainly one of them. Um, you know, we've championed this as a company. We believe that we have to bring people together to protect the cybersecurity of countries around the world, to protect our democracies from cyber attacks. I want to bring things a little bit closer to home. We're in an era where we're seeing increasing activism on the part of tech employees who for many years traditionally, not always, um, have really kind of gone along with the vision of the leaders and the entrepreneurs who got these companies off the ground as tech gets bigger and becomes involved in more areas of the world and society, selling technology, for example, to governments and militaries, we're seeing the tech industry and employees of the tech industry really start to voice their concerns more vocally. And you've encountered it at Microsoft as well. What we found is the first thing we need to do is really engage with employees. We need to listen to them. We need to understand their concerns. One of the things we've found is even when we conclude that a group of employees may not have the right answers, they're often asking the right questions. And if we sit down and actually push ourselves a little bit harder to understand the concerns and think about those questions, we're able to develop a principled path. And I do think in the world today, you need a principled path. And so, for example, we've said on an issue like selling technology to the U.S. military, we believe that's important for us to do. We want the people who defend our country to know that we have their back. But we're also going to use our voice as a corporate citizen to address the new issues around something like the ethics and human rights implications of artificial intelligence and weapons. It is a journey. It is not something that is you know, one and done in a month or a quarter. Um, but I think it's part of a new relationship with employees, and a lot of good can come from a deeper relationship. You're listening to my conversation with Brad Smith, president of Microsoft. Up next, Brad's take on working alongside CEO Sachi Nadella and CFO Amy Hood, and how the leadership team has evolved over the years. I'm Tom Giles, and this is Bloomberg Studio 1.0. You grew up in the Midwest. Your father was an engineer at Wisconsin Bell. Your mother was a school teacher for a time. How did your upbringing influence the trajectory of your career and the choices that you made that led you to where you are now? My parents, first of all, instilled in me uh, uh, an, an ethic that said, don't go talk about yourself, ask other people about themselves. You're gonna come away learning a lot more. And as we think about the issues that we face in the world of technology today, I think what we need to do is learn more and listen more, 
and sometimes maybe talk less. You went to law school at Columbia, undergrad at Princeton where you met your wife. Mm -hmm. We're in a period where there's a lot of rethinking of the role of higher education, the cost, for example. I would love to hear from you about the ways that your experience as an undergrad and in law school shaped your view of the world. I had a wonderful opportunity to learn myself at places like, like Princeton and Columbia, uh, was, was really how big and diverse the world is. It left me with a profound commitment to the importance of education beyond high school. Uh, we need to equip people with the fields of tomorrow, computer science, data science, uh, a multidisciplinary approach to issues around the ethics of artificial intelligence. We need to create more opportunities for people to go back and add to their education uh, because that's what they're going to need on an ongoing basis as technology continues to change the economy and changes jobs. One of your early jobs was at Covington Burling. I understand you had, there was a condition that you wrote into your, uh, your contract there. In hindsight, I look back at my own experience and I both laugh at myself and sort of am slightly amazed that I did what I did because I, there was one firm, law firm, that I wanted to work at, Covington and Burling. I got the offer from that law firm and then I turned around and said, thank you very much, but I won't come work with you in, and at your firm unless you will give me a personal computer. And you know, this was 1986. People looked at me a little bit quizzically, you know, why do you want a PC? We have secretaries that do these things. <laughs> and you know, I had a software program I loved. It was called Microsoft Word version 1.0. And I said, you know what? I can think better. I can write better. I can work faster if I can have that on my desk. And thankfully, it, the firm's management committee, and it took the firm's management committee to do it, I uh, said I could come work there and have my own PC. I want to hear a little bit more about how you went from Covington and Burling to Microsoft. Well, as I got to Covington, I was a lawyer. I was first in Washington, and then I was in the firm's new London office. I spent four years there. And so there came a point in 1993 when David Curtis, wonderful person, uh, he was the chief international counsel at Microsoft, came to me and said, you know, we'd like you to move from London to Paris uh, and take a job at the company and lead our European legal and corporate affairs team. And I thought about it and I went back and I said, no, thank you. And he told me, you don't get it. We're not asking you to come to Microsoft just to work on the things we're doing now. We want you to come to Microsoft and help us identify the things that we're not doing but we should and be in a position to help take us there. And I thought about it, I went, oh, that's pretty cool. That's what brought me to Microsoft. That's what has kept me at Microsoft for 26 years. Your role has uh, evolved quite a bit from 1993 when you were in the legal department um, to where you're now president. I think of your work alongside Satya and Amy Hood, CFO, as something of a triumvirate. Um, how do you three work together and how has your role evolved? Well, you know, it's been a fantastic time to be at the company, first of all. Uh, and uh, Satya became the CEO in, in 2014. Amy had just become the CFO before that. Uh, and, you know, Satya obviously brought this spirit of innovation 
uh, and a real growth mindset to you know, the entire part of the company and perhaps most especially our product development and our engineering. And I think you see this renaissance of innovation. Um, but part of what it takes to be a tech company in the world today is you have to navigate the world. Uh, Amy and I have offices just down the hall uh, with carpet that is well-worn between us. And yeah, we sort of say Amy worries about the macroeconomics of the world, and I worry about the geopolitics of the world. And then together with Satya, uh, we really try to come together and make decisions quickly. And I think that's actually another key aspect of what it takes to be successful as a tech company, especially to innovate. Uh, you need to have people who are not just thinking broadly, but can act decisively. And that's certainly what we strive to do. Good leadership requires uh, more than just, you know, a handful of people who can quickly come to decisions. You want healthy disagreement. Can you give me an example or an anecdote of where there, it wasn't easy to come to a consensus on a shift, a change, a policy decision? Well, first of all, I think your point is of fundamental importance. Uh, the issues of technology, of business, of the world are complicated, and if everybody comes quickly to a single view, there's a really good chance that you're going to miss the, uh, the, the nuances and you're going to make a mistake. In short, almost every issue that we deal with has healthy discussion and debate, and that's fantastic. We had to decide in August of 2018 whether we were going to be more public in our concerns about cyber attacks on American politicians coming from Russia. And we decided that we would speak more clearly, uh, and we did. But the thought process, the discussion process, you know, was not you know, without really good, healthy debate. This is my conversation with Microsoft President Brad Smith. Coming up, we shine a light on how the company navigates regulatory challenges and White House policies that range from immigration to privacy. I'm Tom Giles. This is Bloomberg Studio 1.0. Stay with us. I want to look ahead to the future. Transitioning on that theme of immigration, that's one of these areas where Microsoft's values and the ones that you and Satya and others have articulated have, have put you at odds with the current uh, occupant of the White House. We really seek to provide a candid perspective on what we've thought about and gone through as a company in addressing issues like immigration. The first thing I would say is we have a philosophy, a set of principles that remains constant. Uh, whenever there is a new team in the White House, we have a new president of the United States. Uh, our philosophy is to partner where we can and stand apart when we should. And we worked together with the Obama White House on many issues, and yet we sued the United States government not once but four times over the surveillance and privacy issues that were surfacing in the wake of the Snowden disclosures. Um, we've had the opportunity to work with President Trump and the Trump White House on important initiatives around issues like cybersecurity. And at the same time, we have brought a lawsuit 
together with Princeton University and a Princeton student uh, to address the issues uh, that are facing the dreamers. Uh, we have employees that benefit from the DACA legislation whose ability to stay in the United States uh, is impacted by the executive order that changed that. But I will say the other thing that we really seek to do, regardless of who is in government in this country or in any other, is to focus on the issues, address the substance, be respectful of people, and not engage in you know, some of the more dramatic name calling that I think can take us backwards rather than move us forward. I think especially as a company, we need to be a force for constructive dialogue and progress. Uh, and you know, that is the, the kind of philosophical tenet around which we just remain steadfast. We're on the cusp of another election. As you look at the field of candidates for 2020, are there any who are articulating what you believe to be a sensible way forward for the technology industry? Well, one of the reasons we wrote this book is we, in fact, believe there's an opportunity not just for people who are running for office, but for all of us as citizens to actually think a bit more broadly and deeply about the technology issues of our time. And yeah, I think that there's a lot of room for us to be broader in our perspective. Technology is changing the world, but it is not reaching everyone in this country. Uh, rural communities are being held back by the lack of access to broadband. Uh, many populations, minority populations, people who are less well off, are being held back by the lack of access to technology skills. We all have fundamental interests in the protection of our privacy and security and the like. Uh, and so what we would say is we would all benefit from understanding where technology is going and then thinking about what that means for our lives and what we will, what we will need from the leaders of our states and this country. And it's really an effort to make these issues more approachable, to also hopefully make them a little more interesting and engaging, uh, that really sort of motivated us to take the time uh, to put this book together. Is there a candidate who's outlining a what you consider to be a sensible view on the right way to regulate technology? Well, I'm not going to endorse uh, any you know specific candidate. I will say that in every candidate we see some ideas that we think have real merit, and in every candidate we see an opportunity to learn more and do better. If there's one issue that I'll point to where I would frankly just love to see more attention and more innovation, uh, it is in this issue around rural broadband. Um, we live every day in this country now with an appreciation that there are people in rural communities that feel that the country is not serving their needs. And yet what we too often see, I fear, is candidates who talk about spending you know, 60 or 70 or $80 billion or more to try to bring fiber optic cables to every home there are better ways, there are cheaper ways, there are faster ways for us to connect everyone in this country. We need to make it a goal, we need to 
ground ourselves in the data. We need to have a more forward-looking strategy. I hope that we'll see one or more candidates embrace this because it deserves to be a real mission, we believe, for the United States. Microsoft was a real trailblazer, even if it didn't want to be, in terms of uh, you know navigating a U.S. government that uh, really tried to break up what it saw as a monopoly or monopolistic tendencies. We're on the cusp of, we're at the early stages, I would argue, of another big wave of regulatory scrutiny and crackdown on the technology industry. What are the takeaways from your experience in the antitrust uh, uh, battle with the U.S. government that you think are relevant to the Facebooks and Googles of the world who find themselves on the, on the receiving end of, of, of a great deal of government ire right now? It's so important to understand the concerns that people have the problems that they want to see solved. Um, it's so easy in the world of technology to be so excited about yourself and your own products that you can sort of lose touch with the concerns that others may have about you. And I, I, we learned in some ways the hard way uh, about the importance of getting out and listening and connecting and then working to solve problems. But I think we also learned that nobody ever dies of humility. Uh, if you can move forward with a spirit of listening, you can then address the issues, whether it's privacy or you know, security or something else. Um, but it all starts with a willingness to step back and look anew and even look at yourself with a little more perspective than you had before. You've spent more than two decades at Microsoft You've really helped shape and usher in a, a new era of engagement with the government. And uh, as Bill Gates talks about in his introduction, what's left to do there Well, for you? There is always more work to do. Uh, the first thing I would say is I've been enormously fortunate to work on very important issues with a number of great people and do it as part of a great team. But let's just think about the issues that matter to the future. When I started working at Microsoft 26 years ago, technology was still a niche. Today, it's ubiquitous. Uh, I think what the world needs is tech companies and people in government who can work together to solve the problems that are going to define our generation of people. We are on the cusp of bringing to life machines with artificial intelligence that for the first time in human history will have the capability to make decisions that previously were only made by people. As a generation, we better get that right because if we fail, every generation that follows is going to pay the price for our shortcomings. So every day, I actually get up with not only the opportunity to work with what I regard as some of the most wonderful people you can find anywhere, but an opportunity to contribute to some of the greatest challenges of our time. And I have a lot of work I hope I can continue to do. There's a lot of work that needs to be done at other companies right now, though. We've talked about Facebook. Alex Stamos, formerly of Facebook, has said, you should be CEO of, of Facebook. Now would be a good time for somebody like you. Does that not appeal, a challenge I, like that? I am working at the right company, in the right job, 
for the person who I would rather work for than anybody in this industry, Satya Nadella. Um, there's no other place I would want to be. I don't want to take anything away from anybody else or any other company, uh, but I am exactly where I want to be. Government, the idea of working in the government where you could where you could push for the enactment of, of, of the policies that you outline in your book, that doesn't appeal? No, for a very particular reason. One of the things that we get to do is work with governments around the world on a sustained basis. One of the things I've learned from my years at Microsoft is if you actually want to have an impact and you want to measure yourself not by your title or your job, but what you actually contribute to and help accomplish, you've got to be prepared to take something on and stick with it. You've got to have a long-term vision. And that's what we're working to do at Microsoft, where we think about these issues of trust and security and privacy and the like. So I feel that I'm at a place where it's not just me, obviously, but a group of people uh, is able to contribute in a very particular and constructive way. And I, that's what I want to keep doing. Brad Smith, Microsoft president, thank you so much for joining us today on Bloomberg Studio 1.0. Thank you. Bloomberg Studio 1.0 is produced and edited by Kevin Hines. Our executive producer is Candy Chang. Our managing editor is Danielle Culbertson. I'm Tom Giles, Bloomberg News executive editor. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.